my youngest daughter is going to be turning 16 this fall. And uh, so, you know, we're going to go through the whole learning how to drive thing and uh, the excitement and, and some of the challenges of that as well. And uh, so we're looking forward to that. And I was thinking back to when I was learning how to drive, you know, and, and for the most part, it was fair, fairly intuitive, fairly straightforward. You know, you'd, you want to go to the right, you turn the steering wheel to the right, you want to go to the left, turn the steering wheel to the left, you're a little bit faster, you press down more on the gas, you want to slow down, you press on the brake. The challenge for me was I was also learning to do this on a manual transmission car, you know, with a stick, and how many of you remember three on the tree, you know, with the, a couple of you remember that, you know, with the shifter is sitting there on the steering column, you know, so you got the brake, but you also have the klutz over there, and actually that was the guy that was driving was the klutz, and, you know, there were hills that I never knew existed, you know, perfectly flat land, and the car could roll backwards for like 50 feet, you know, I don't know how that would happen, but anyway, for the most part, it's pretty straightforward, except when you start skidding, you know, and back in those days, there were two things you absolutely should not do, you know, first is if the car is skidding left, you don't want to turn right, you got to turn into the skid, and the other one is you don't jam on the brake, you pump it, now today, that's changed, you can step on the brake all you want, because we've got anti-lock brakes on there, but it's still essential that you turn into the skid. And I remember when I first heard about it, it's like, okay, so the cliff is over there and I'm going that way and you want me to turn in the direction of the cliff, right? You know, we'll talk afterwards with the three of you who understand this. I actually understand the physics of why that works and why you want to do that. So Josh, you and I can talk about it afterwards and, you know, a couple other people will be all set. But it is so unbelievably counterintuitive to do that. Yet if you don't, you're much more likely to get into an accident. And the the same thing is true in so many areas of our lives. What seems intuitive is actually counterintuitive. Whether it's turning into the skid, if you're a golfer, at least if you play like I do, the harder your swing, the shorter the ball goes or or the further it goes off the course, you know, to the right usually for me. You know, or you've got a six month old baby and she's crying in the middle of the night, and your natural instinct is to go and to give her a hug, etc. If you want her to learn how to sleep through the night, you've got to resist that natural instinct, and you've got to let her cry it out sometimes. Not all the time, but sometimes you have to do that. And there's so many different areas in our lives when we have to go against our natural instincts. And the same thing is true often when it comes to trusting God. In the challenges in the times when it's going to cost something, often we have to go against, to go against our natural instincts in order to trust God. And, and this morning, I want us to look at a passage that really illustrates this in a powerful way. As you've heard, we're in the middle of a series that we're calling 168, which represents the last 168 hours of Jesus' life, the last week that Jesus was living on the earth. And today, we're going to be looking at hour 114, about 11 o'clock on Thursday night, the night before Jesus was crucified. And last week, Rich was talking to us from a passage that was several hours earlier that evening where Jesus was being tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, at the end of that time, and he was praying, and you, you know, if you haven't heard the message, go back and, and listen to it online. But at the end of that time, the soldiers came and arrested Jesus. And we're going to pick up the action uh, just shortly after the arrest. And we're going to be looking at it from the Gospel of Mark. Mark was one of Jesus' biographers. And in chapter 14, verse 53, Mark writes, They took Jesus to the high priest, 
And all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. Let me just stop there for a second because I want to kind of orient you to what's going on in this passage. First of all, Jesus is inside the house, probably upstairs somewhere on the second floor, uh, with all of the Jewish religious leaders gathered together. And he's on trial, uh, literally for his life, upstairs. Peter is downstairs, outside in the courtyard, hanging out with the servants and the other people who were there. And I remember some years ago, as I was reading through this passage, I noticed something really kind of strange. The first verse here is about Jesus. The second verse is about Peter. Then you got six, seven, eight verses about Jesus. Again, we haven't read those yet. We'll get to those in a minute. And then you got another six, seven, or eight verses about Peter. So it goes one verse about Jesus, one verse about Peter, big section about Jesus, big section about Peter. And I'm thinking, why wouldn't Mark just go Jesus all the way and then Peter all the way? What he's trying to do is show us that both of these events, both of these trials, so to speak, were going on at the same time. They didn't have split screen back then. They were an oral society rather than a visual society. And they would have immediately understood that Mark is signaling to them that these two things are going on at the same time. And so he wants us to notice that and then to begin to compare and contrast the two. So let's keep going on here, uh, looking at verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council, the political and religious leaders of of the Jews in that day, the the chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, And in three days, I'll build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Think about the situation here. They're trying to convict Jesus of capital crimes. They want to put him to death. And so they need to have at least two witnesses to agree that he's done something deserving of death. And so they're bringing all these charges against him but they can't get their witnesses to agree. And they're false witnesses. They probably bribe them and they can't get them to agree so that if they can't get their stories straight, then they're not gonna be able to convict him. And so the chief priests and the other religious leaders are getting more and more and more frustrated with the situation that's going on here. So instead, they turn to Jesus. In verse 60, the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not gonna answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent, and he gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying there. We may not catch it right away, but they knew exactly what he was saying. When he says, I am, he's alluding back to the Old Testament book of Exodus. And if you're, if you're at all familiar with the story of the Israelites coming out of slavery in Egypt, when God was ready to lead them out of slavery, 
he appeared to a guy named Moses. He appeared to him in a burning bush. And he says to Moses, I want you to go and lead my people, lead your people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses says, okay, but when I go to them, who am I going to say sent me? I mean, which, you know, which God are you? What, what's your name? And God responds and he says, I am who I am. My name is I am, the eternal present in a sense. I am is sending you. And so when Jesus says, I am, the Jewish religious leaders know exactly what he's saying. He's claiming to be the God of Moses and the God of their forefathers, the God who created heaven and earth. And then he goes on and he says, essentially, I'm going to come back and you think you're sitting in judgment over me? The day's going to come when I'm going to sit in judgment over you. So if they were looking for evidence to convict Jesus, he gave them exactly what they needed. From their point of view, this is blasphemy. Verse 63, the high priest tore, tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as being worthy of death. From their perspective, Jesus was not God, though he really was. But from their perspective, Jesus was not God. And he just gave them the evidence that they needed in order to convict him. So at the same time as Jesus is on trial upstairs inside, Peter's hanging around outside with the servants and the guards and some other people outside, and he's on trial as well. It's not an official trial, but from his perspective, he's on trial just as much as Jesus is. And we'll pick up the action there in verse 66. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him, You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said. And he went out into the the, uh, entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. And again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them. You're a Galilean. And they could tell that uh, most likely from his accent. He began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man that you're talking about. And immediately a rooster crowed the second time. And then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. So Mark wants us to see these two stories occurring at the same time. He wants us to see Jesus on trial upstairs, Peter on trial downstairs. And so let's just take a couple of minutes and and compare and contrast uh, the two stories. Both Jesus and Peter knew exactly what was coming. Jesus is God. He'd mentioned a number of times that he was going to be tried and convicted by uh, by the religious leaders. And he he also promised that he was going to rise again from the dead. So he knew exactly what was coming. Peter did too, not because he's God, but because God, Jesus, told him so. He said, look, before the rooster crows twice, you're going to deny me three times. So they both knew what was coming, and they both knew what the right thing to do. Peter had absolutely no question as to what the right thing that he should do was. Jesus, on the one hand, was on trial for his life. Peter probably wasn't. He could have gotten in some pretty big trouble, but the chances of him getting killed for being associated with Jesus were not that high at that point. So it would have been uncomfortable. It would have been difficult for him. 
but he probably wasn't on trial for his life. Jesus was being falsely accused. Every charge that they brought against him was untrue. He was the one that had to give them the evidence to convict himself. Every charge that was brought against Peter, basically saying, hey, you're a friend of Jesus, aren't you? That was absolutely true. So the charges against Jesus were false. Charges against Peter were true. Jesus told the truth and Peter lied. Jesus chose to help us, chose to help Peter. He chose to sacrifice himself to give his life for the guy who was at the same time denying that he even knew him. Chose to give his life for us, to die on the cross, to pay the penalty that we rightly should pay for our sin, for our brokenness, for our rebellion, for our hard hearts. Jesus chose to help us. Peter chose to help himself. Jesus trusted his heavenly father. He trusted God. Peter trusted his own instincts. Jesus was completely comfortable with the choice that he made, with the words that he said. And if he had to do it over and over and over again, he wouldn't have changed a single thing. He knew exactly what he was doing and he was completely comfortable with the choice that he made. Peter, no sooner than the words were out of his mouth and the rooster crows, he immediately regretted what he said. And if he could have done it again, I guarantee he wish he could have taken those words back and said, yeah, I know Jesus, I'm with him. But he didn't choose to do that. We could stop here and I could say, follow Jesus' example, don't follow Peter's. Trust your God rather than your gut. I mean, that's, you know, kind of a little ring to it. Trust your God rather than your gut. You know, go with what you know God would have you to do. Trust in him rather than what you think, what your natural instinct would be. And that would be true, and that would be good, and, and actually we should. I mean, one of the takeaways to have from this morning is absolutely, in those situations, make the choice to follow after God rather than your own instinct. Turn into the skid rather than away from it, even though at the time it may seem like it's the wrong thing to do. Trust God because he's trustworthy. But really, then that brings up the question, is he trustworthy? How can I know that I can trust him? How can I be sure that if I trust him, I'm going to be glad that I did? I'm not going to regret it. When you're thinking about trusting somebody, there are really two questions, at least two questions that you need to ask. First of all, do they care? Do they care? Do they have my best interests at heart? Are they thinking of me or are they thinking of themselves? So one, do they care? And secondly, are they capable? Do they know what they're talking about? Are they correct? Can they deliver what they've promised? I was about uh, eight years old and some of my friends wanted to go down to a lake near my house and uh, you know, go hang out and play on the lake. It was frozen, it was winter, so it was ice on the lake. And so we're, we're down there and they're saying, hey, Clay, come on out. You know, the lake, it's going to be great. We can, you know, run on the ice and, you know, do hockey or whatever we want to do. And I'm standing there on the edge of the dock looking down, and I am asking myself, these are eight-year-old boys. Do they have my best interest in heart? Do they care? Or do they want to see me go for a little swim in the water? Question number one, do they care? Question number two, 
Do they know what they're talking about? Because as I'm looking down there, I can see the fish swimming under the ice. And I'm saying, I don't know that they know what they're talking about, you know? So as I'm standing there trying to make this decision, can I trust them? I look out on the ice and about in the middle of the lake, there's a car. Some guy had driven his car out onto the lake. And at that point I said, okay, whether or not they get my, got my best interest in mind, if the ice can hold that car, it can hold my, you know, 85 or 90 pounds, whatever I weighed, you know, at that point. And I uh, went out and had a great time. But the question is, when it comes to God, does he care? And is he capable? You know, does he have my best interest at heart? And can he deliver what he's promised? And I think Jesus meets both of these criteria and we see it right in this passage. Take a look at verse 60. The high priest stood up before them and asked, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? All Jesus had to do was keep his mouth shut. And that would have been it. They couldn't have convicted him and they probably would have had to let him go free because no matter what their best efforts were to bring all these false witnesses in there, they couldn't get their story straight and so they would have to let him go free. And yet... Jesus chose to give them the testimony that they needed in order to convict him. Why would he do that? You've got really two choices. Either the guy is a raving lunatic with a martyr complex, or he's doing it for some greater purpose. And if you read through the Gospels, you realize Jesus is anything but a raving lunatic with a a martyr complex. He gave his life in our place. He chose to voluntarily sacrifice himself. He didn't have to do it. He chose to do it. So does he care? Yeah, absolutely. The high priest tore his clothes and said, why do we have any more need of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as being worthy of death, which they could not have done had he not given them that testimony. So does Jesus care? Absolutely. Does he have our best interest in heart? You can bet his life that he does because he gave his life for us. So on the one hand, he cares, but is he capable? Can he deliver what he's promised? If you put your shoes, if you put yourself in the shoes of someone like Peter and the other disciples at that point, not knowing what's coming on Sunday not knowing about Easter, not knowing about the resurrection, you may get the point that Jesus cares, but he's dead, or he's going to be dead in a few hours. He's going to get crucified. So how can this God deliver what he's promised if he's dead? Notice what he said in, says in verse 62. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. I'm going to come back and I'm going to judge you people who are judging me. And how is he going to do that if he's dead? He's not. He's going to be alive again. He knew and he had promised and he had told his disciples on multiple occasions he was going to be killed and he was going to rise again. And he knew full well what was coming, both his death and his resurrection. So if we ask the question, does he care? Yes, he sacrificed his life. Is he capable? Is he competent? Can he deliver? Absolutely, because God raised him from the dead. And the God who raised him from the dead is more than capable of delivering any other promise 
that he's made. Jesus' death shows that he cares. His resurrection shows that he's capable. God sent his son because he loved us. He sent his son to die for us. And he's powerful enough to raise him from the dead. And he's powerful enough to meet every and any need that we have in our lives. And that means that we can trust him. I don't think Peter understood that at that point. I I think Peter had some idea because he had seen Jesus loving people and he had seen Jesus perform miracles, but it was probably all up here, mostly in his head. I don't think it had filtered its way down to his heart. Otherwise, I don't think Peter would have denied Jesus at that point. He trusted his gut rather than trusting his God and, and he regretted it. But about a week after, a week or so after Jesus was resurrected, Jesus forgave Peter. He forgave Peter for denying him. He forgave Peter for disowning him. And I think at that point, Peter really began to get it. He said, okay, this God, this Jesus loves me enough that even when he was on trial for his life and I disowned him, he still forgave me. He didn't turn his back on me. He didn't walk away from me. He didn't say, forget you, I'm done with you. He said, no, I love you, I forgive you. I died in your place. And he had seen the resurrected Jesus, so he had no question about his power. And what's really cool is probably 30, 40 years or so later, Peter was willing to die to give his life for his faith, to be killed as a martyr because he was a follower of Jesus. So I think Peter got it. And and the choices that we face on a day-to-day basis are not all that different from the choice that Peter faced that night. Do we identify ourselves with Jesus or do we disown him? Tomorrow morning, you're at work and somebody says, what'd you do? You know, what'd you do this weekend? You gonna mention that you went to Renaissance? You gonna mention that you went to church? Actually, probably most of you will because Renaissance is a pretty cool place to be and you might even invite your friends, you know, at some point. And in this culture, it's not a big deal to go to church. Lots of people go to church. So that's not a big deal. There's not much risk involved in that. But what if the conversation then turns to, you know, because it's getting near Easter and there's all these, you're going to start seeing the magazine articles are going to start coming out about the wacko Christians who believe uh, that this 2,000-year-old book uh, actually has something to say about how we live our lives. So somebody brings in an article from Time or Newsweek or you know whatever it is, and they're talking about these idiot wacko Christians. Are you going to say, you know, I'm not so sure they're idiots or wackos. In fact, I believe that that 2,000-year-old book actually has uh, something to say about how we can live our lives and have a relationship with God. Or, or are you going to keep your mouth shut? You're probably not going to say, oh, yeah, they're a bunch of wackos. But will you keep your mouth shut? Or will you say, no, you know what? I believe that, and in fact, I don't think that article is entirely accurate. Do we love those who hurt us, or do we choose to seek revenge? Do we forgive them, or do we never let them forget what they did to us? Do we tell the truth, or do we lie? Well, it's easy when it doesn't cost anything, but what about when it costs something? Do we tell the truth, Or do we lie? Do we put others' needs before our own? Or do we do what's really in our best interests, even if it means that someone else is hurt by it or isn't helped by us? Do we trust our gut? 
Do we trust our instincts or do we trust our God? Do we do things our way or do we say, you know what? I'm gonna do things your way, God. When, when we're in the heat of the moment, it is so easy to make the choice that comes naturally. I would bet that the majority of us, myself included, if we were where Peter was that night, would have done exactly what Peter did because that's who we are. We're fallen, we're broken, we're imperfect human beings. And that's what we're used to doing. We're used to doing what comes naturally, but that's not always the best choice. When we're learning to drive, we have to make the conscious effort to turn into the skid rather than away from it. And now that there's anti-lock brakes, I have to make a conscious effort to keep my foot on the brake and not pump it because the computer in the car can do it a whole lot faster than I can do it, you know? But we can learn to turn into the skid. We can learn to either pump or not pump the brakes as is appropriate. The more that we do what's counterintuitive, the more it becomes intuitive to us. It's counterintuitive to turn into the skid. But after a while, I would bet most of you who've been driving for more than five years or so, you just automatically turn into the skid. The same thing can be true in our relationship with God. We've got to learn to trust him. We've got to learn to make the choice, to make the right choice. It's, most of the time, it's not an issue of knowing what's right and knowing what's wrong. 90, 95, maybe 99% of the time, we know the right thing to do. We know the choice that we should make. We know what God would have us do. We know what it means to trust him in that situation. And yet, Sometimes everything in our, in our being is saying, turn the other way. And we have to stop and say, no, I'm going to consciously choose to turn into that skid. I'm going to consciously choose to trust God, even when my gut tells me otherwise. And as we do that, little by little, day by day, week by week, more and more, it's going to become natural for us to trust him. Because what's going to happen is, as we start to trust him, we're going to see how much he cares And as we trust him more, we're going to see more of his power in our lives. And we're going to see that, in fact, he is trustworthy. So what today may be in our heads intellectually is eventually going to filter down to our hearts and become part of really of who we are. And it's going to become more and more natural to trust him. Our God cares. Our God is capable. Jesus has our best interest at heart. And he is more than able to deliver what he's promised. And because of that, we can trust him. We can say, God, I know that you know what you're doing a whole lot better than I do. Okay, I'm going to do things your way. Just pray that you give me the faith to trust you. And I look forward to seeing how you work in my life and perhaps even through me in the lives of people around me. Let me pray for us. Father, it is so powerful to see the, the juxtaposition of, of Peter and Jesus and what was going on there. And most of us, most of the time, are so often with Peter rather than with Jesus But Father, I pray that as we look at this passage and so many other passages and we see the love that you have for us, we see that you care, we see that you have our best interest at heart, and we see the power that you have, especially displayed 
on Easter Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. I pray that our trust of you would grow and that when we're in the heat of the moment, when we're faced with the decision that we have to make, I pray that we would start by consciously choosing to trust in you rather than to going the way that seems most natural to us. But I pray that as we do that time and time and time again, it would become more and more and more natural for us to trust you because we would know you so well that there would be no question in our minds and in our hearts, but that you are trustworthy that you care, that you're capable, and that you're going to work in a powerful way and that we will experience incredible blessing as we follow you. I thank you that you're a God of love, that you're a God of grace, that you're a God of forgiveness, that you forgave Peter, that you forgive us when we stumble and fall, that you don't turn your back on us, that you don't reject us, you don't send us away, but you draw us to yourself, you pick us up, you dust us off, you forgive us, and you strengthen us and you continue to love us. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.